0: The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week again, we're brought to you by the short story anthology Impugned by a Peasant and other stories by Frank Key. Mr. Key is a grand master of the absurd, a prolific writer of pamphlets, a talented storyteller and a notable radio show personality, not to be confused with the obscure Canadian composer and struggling musician Hank. Key, lesser-known great-great-great-half-grand step-nephew thrice-removed to legendary anthem writer Francis Scott Key, who of course Hank refers to as great 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 half thrice they removed grand step-uncle Frank, and whose monumental namesake and compositional legacy poor Hank undoubtedly feels he'll never measure up to or escape from.
1: <clears throat> oh, say can you see, only indistinct bloods as you squelch through the marsh On your way to the pigsty In the cold misty dawn You are poked at with twigs By the sprites of the marsh Who are strident and captious You're not wearing your specks You're disorientated you sink to your knees in the vapours of marsh gas The sprites harry you, and the hector you too You spill all the pig feed out of your tin pail Such a dawning as this, on a wet Wednesday morn It does make you wonder why ere you were born
0: That a song about independence written by a guy named Key could ever become such a dark, dark prison for a man. Not only are the stories in Frank's new anthology profound and life affirming, they're also practical. Take, for example, this one, which we're going to run from Frank's anthology. It's called Hoofprint Advice, and it's read by Frank himself from back in his 1980s
1: infomercial days. Upon waking, the sight of hoofprints on the ceiling, hoofprints that were not there when you fell asleep, can be worrisome. The regime has now issued a helpful step-by-step guide setting out precisely what to do in the circumstances. One, remain lying in bed, quite still, staring at the ceiling. Try to recall any dreams you may have had while you were asleep. Did any hooved beasts, such as goats or horses, feature in these dreams? If so, they were probably not dreams at all, and thus you have a preliminary explanation for the hoof prints on your ceiling. Report this immediately to your local nocturnal hoofprint investigating officer. Two. If you did not dream of hooved beasts or cannot recall doing so, you're left without a satisfactory explanation for the hoof prints. This will not do. Get out of bed, plunge your head into a pail of icy water thrice and look again at the ceiling. If the hoof prints are no longer visible, bury the memory of ever having seen them. Three. If, on the other hand, the hoof prints are still there, clamber onto a stepladder and try to obliterate them with a rag and a proprietary cleansing spray, such as Hoof Be Gone. If you are able to eradicate the hoof prints entirely, fold up your stepladder, return the spray to your cupboard, and wash the rag in warm, soapy water. Four. It may be that the hoof prints on your ceiling are impossible to remove. Do not even think about painting over them with whitewash. Instead, get dressed in something fetching and pay a visit to the local nocturnal hoofprint investigation office. Make an appointment to see a ceiling hoofprint specialist. 5. At the subsequent interview, before you're tied to a chair in the cellar, provide the specialist with any snapshots you've taken of your ceiling. When asked to describe the hoof prints and any other phenomena that may be pertinent, give full and frank answers before the hood is pulled over your head. Six. When you recover consciousness in a ditch in a remote part of the country, dressed in a paper suit, make your way to the border. Report to the guards and on no account say a word about the hoof prints. Submit willingly when one of the guards points a sort of magnetic ray gun at your brain. 7. As a sleeper agent in the neighbouring statelet, Obtain a menial job and await further instructions. Note that the suckers on your hands and newly behooved feet should be kept free of dust and grime. Avoid podiatrists, even in social settings, such as cocktail parties and petank tournaments.
0: Boof print advice with Dr. Frank Key. Be sure to drop by www.hootingyard.org and order yourself one of these folks. You'll be happy you did. Okay, so another doubleheader special this week. Two short stories by one featured writer. This week we're bringing you two sea monster-related tales by Sarah Monette called National Geographic on Assignment, Mermaids of the Old West and Darkness as a Bride. Sarah holds a Ph.D. in English literature, and her stories have appeared in lots of different places, including Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, Alchemy, Weird Tales, and Strange Horizons. Her novels are published by Ace Books, and she also has a collaboration with Elizabeth Bear called A Companion to Wolves from Tor. As usual with doubleheaders, you'll hear from Miss Monette herself and get a little background about these stories afterward in an author's note. Helping read these stories to you, we've got Kimmy Alexander back on the show. Kimmy's had roles in podcasts and podcast novels such as the Metamore City podcast, Dead Hunt, Angel Between the Lines, The Ties That Bind, Guild of the Cowry Catchers, and Digital Magic. Check her out and hire her for your project at gifted-reader.com. And now, without further ado, we bring you National Geographic on Assignment, Mermaids of the Old West by Sarah Manette.
2: pressed her hand flat against the wall of the tank, baring her teeth at the crowd. There was a surprised murmur, and several people near the front stepped back hastily. She was from Lake Mead, hauled writhing and screaming out of its clear blue depths by a DNR crewed boat, and you could see that she had been a catfish before. Now, she was an aquarium attraction in San Francisco. I wanted to tell her it wasn't so bad. If she'd been netted by private interests, she might have ended up like her sisters I'd photographed in Las Vegas, decked out as mermaids of the Old West. Annie Oakley and Calamity Jane. They'd been taught to do tricks, like the orcas at SeaWorld. It was enough to make me want to hand out prints of the photographs I'd taken in the North Atlantic. A mermaid stretched out dead on the deck of a trawler. They hadn't wanted to kill her, the trawler crew told me, But she'd bitten one of them before they realized she was trapped in their nets, and they'd had to break her jaw to get her to let go. It had killed her. Mermaids are more fragile than you'd think. The Lake Mead mermaid beat her fist against the glass, a curiously human gesture. I sighed and trained the camera on her clenched hands, on the cold fury in her small, shining eyes, on the shadows of the crowds against the glass and took the picture.
3: National Geographic on Assignment, Mermaids of the Old West, came from two things. One was obviously National Geographic, and particularly their National Geographic on Assignment feature, and the other, was my friend, Elise Matheson, who makes jewelry. She makes earrings and bracelets and necklaces, and she gives them titles. She titled one of her necklaces, Mermaids of the Old West, and for some reason, the inscrutable alchemy of creativity, that crossed in my head with National Geographic on assignment, and the piece basically just wrote itself right there, and then, like that.
0: Darkness as a Bride by Sarah Monette The inventor built the town a virgin. He had objected, but the mayor, the town alderman behind him, prevailed. They needed a virgin to make a bargain with the sea monster who hunted the waters off their coast, and they were not willing to sacrifice their daughters and the inventor, a cripple, both guest and prisoner, knew what would happen to him if he refused. The town doctor was a cold man, all black and white, with a cruel red mouth, and he would not balk if the mayor told him to take the inventor's eyes. The inventor was not a brave man. He made a virgin, as he was told. She was a monstrous thing, charnel and clockwork, though comely enough to look upon. Only at very close range could one observe the unyielding chill of her flesh, the mechanical regularity of her breath, the blind stone of her eyes, the darkness within her where others had light. The inventor gave her a name, but no one ever asked him what it was. He taught her to walk, to speak, to eat and excrete. He taught her to listen, taught her to dance. He taught her that she was a monster by the way he did not answer certain questions, by the way he did not ask certain others. By the way, when she touched him, he always withdrew and always apologized for it, fumblingly, uncomfortably. He could not teach her to love, but he did not need to. The mayor and the aldermen were pleased by her silence as much as her pettiness, by her obedience as much as her virginity. They agreed, not bothering to lower their voices, not caring if she could hear them, that she was a fair and reasonable sacrifice. And at dawn on the first day of spring, they took her to the cold coast, the town doctor pushing the inventor in a great wheeled wicker chair, and chained her to an ancient boulder. The town doctor pinched his fingers in the aged and rusty manacles and swore savagely. She could not bleed, but the mayor had brought a vial of his own daughter's blood, which he made a fussy little ceremony of pouring into the sea. Then the aldermen retreated to a safe distance, taking the inventor with them, and they waited, the alderman passing around a flask, the inventor huddled into his chair, the virgin standing straight, unyielding against the boulder her blind eyes staring at the sun. When the sun was a handspan span above the horizon, the sea monster arrived, a massive creature, whiskered like a catfish, maned and mantled. Its eyes were great lamps in its ponderous skull, its teeth like scimitars. It drew itself partway out of the sea, its webbed front feet splayed against the rocky beach, and looked under its magnificent tufted eyebrows from the huddled group of men to the Virgin standing straight and unyielding against the rock. The monster leaned forward and snuffled with great dignity at the cold, pale skin of her arm. She did not flinch, her breath did not catch, and her eyes continued to stare stonily ahead, unblinking. Ah, the monster said at last, pulling its head back. Yes, an ingenious cheat.
4: Am I?
0: Said the virgin, Her voice revealed her nature as harsh and unmodulated as the cry of a crow. But the monster did not seem to mind. Oh yes, my poor monstrous patchwork child. Yes, indeed.
4: I am a virgin.
0: I'm certain that you are, the monster said kindly. But you aren't a sacrifice.
4: They chained me to this rock
0: and felt not one shred of reluctance not one ort of regret you are no sacrifice for it costs them nothing to give you to me
4: so you will not bargain with them
0: no i will not the virgin said nothing for a time the monster amiable curious waited she said abruptly as all her utterances were abrupt
4: Could I make a bargain with you?
0: You could, for you are a virgin. But forgive me, my dear. Have you anything to sacrifice? I love, she said in her harsh, inhuman voice.
4: It is all I have. I would give you that.
0: Ah said the monster, and leaned forward again, this time snuffling at her hair and face, at her blind, unblinking eyes. So you do. And if I took this love, what would you want in return?
4: I want to be free,
0: she said, and although there was no emotion in her voice or her face, the monster smelled her fierceness all the same.
4: I want to be free of this town and those men and the purpose I was made for. I want to be free of the one who made me.
0: The one you love?
4: He will never love me back. And if he who made me cannot love me, I should not love.
0: That, I think, is not true. But your love for him is a worthy sacrifice. Is this what you want, my dear? Yes. She said.
4: Yes, I want to be free.
0: Very well, the monster said, and it dug its claws into the rocky beach, lowered its head, and arched the tremendous length of its tail out of the water, and then, as swift as the blade of a guillotine, brought it down. The virgin and her rock and the cliff and the men standing on it were drenched, But what mattered was the earthquake that answered a long moment later, a sullen, grumbling, grinding, voracious snarl that split the cliff asunder beneath the inventor's great wheeled wicker chair and ran thence, creating a jagged, parlous canyon, to the town and to the town hall and to the cramped back room where the inventor had lived and had taught the virgin to live as well. In the aftermath, the virgin stood, still pale and unyielding, her wrists still manacled, but chained to nothing. And walking up the beach toward her was a young, old man, dressed gorgeously in silks and colors of the sea and sun, and a wild, white mane of hair, tremendous tufted eyebrows and mustaches like those of a catfish. His eyes were great in human lamps, though... The Virgin, of course, could not see them. She felt his approach and tilted her head a little to listen to the sound of his bare, clawed feet against the rocks and sand.
4: Are they all dead, then?
0: Most of them. She considered that.
4: Should I be sorry?
0: Would you have chosen differently? No. No. Then, no. You are what they made you.
4: I feel cold,
0: said the virgin.
4: Broken. My love is gone.
0: Yes, said the monster.
4: But you are still here.
0: Yes, the monster said again, smiling a wide, white, scimitar smile. The virginity is as important as the sacrifice, you understand. The virgin made no response for a moment. She was not human to nod, or draw back, or make a noise with no meaning to it. Then, she said. Yes. And began to undo the buttons of her dress. The monster broke the manacles off her wrists before they made love on the remains of the rock those manacles had chained her to. For monsters can love. Did you doubt it?
3: Darkness as a Bride comes from two things. Um, one is the ballet Coppelia, which is about a man who makes a giant wooden doll and then the man who falls in love with her, and of course in the ballet she is performed by a ballerina, so she is not inanimate, although she is, and the virgin in this story is a little like that, that she is she is sort of an inanimate object except that she is alive and has opinions of her own. And. So Coppelia, which is a ballet I've always liked a great deal since I was a kid, crossed somehow in my head with the story of Perseus and Andromeda, in which Andromeda's parents, of course, are going to sacrifice her to the sea monster, and Perseus comes along and kills it. Only what happened in this story is, well, what if there wasn't a Perseus? And then, well, what exactly does it mean to make a sacrifice? And what happens when you try to cheat? That's pretty much where this story came from, is the place where those two ideas came together. And I still don't know quite why that happened, but I'm glad that it did.
0: Well, that was our doubleheader. Hope you enjoyed it. These two stories illustrate one important fact about sea monsters. They almost always turn out to be something totally different once you get a good look at them. If you enjoyed these two stories, folks, consider donating to us to help us keep the show going. You can do so easily with any of the options that you'll find at Drabblecast.org. We do appreciate it. Gotta duck out early this week, folks. I must join friends and family in the consumption of large, flightless birds. But not before reading you this week's 100-character story winner from first-time twabler Duchess Alyssa. Here it is. The rescuers pulled the pretty blonde girl from the wreckage. Then she shed her protective outer covering and ate them. Love it. Think you can write a good story with only 100 characters? Give it a shot. Post in our discussion forums. You might take the weekly crown. Follow us on Twitter if you do that thing. We're at the Travelcast. Oh, one other quick thing. Thanksgiving isn't the only good thing happening this week. It's the Super Animal Mega Beast Deathmatch Finals, people. If you follow our pointless side competition and listen to our related explicit content filled podcast, you know that this is the week where listeners pick who they think would win in an arbitrary, imaginary deathmatch between our three finalists. Will it be a massive two-ton worm bear chimera with deadly ninja abilities, an invisible flying stegosaurus minotaur that can fire heat-seeking missiles, or a bandersnatch? We've got drawings. We've got pointless drunken debates podcasted out there. You get to decide. Go to megabeasts.com and get in here at the end, where the inane gets epic. Well, that's our show, folks. Remember, it was brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Tanya Henderson. is an illustrator, painter, and animator operating in the West Hollywood area. More of her work can be found and accessed at her blog, www.tanhend.blogspot.com. We'll see you next week, Weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of Associate Editor Matthew Bay, a group of patank-playing podiatrists, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that monsters can love, too.
1: Oh, say can you see, only indistinct blurs, as you squelch through the marsh on your way to the pigsty. In, in the cold misty yes. dawn, you, you are poked at with twigs by the sprites, sprites of the marsh you who are strident and captious. You're, you're not, not wearing, wearing your, your specs, you're, you're disorientated. disorientated. You, you sink to your knees in the vapours of the marsh gas. Gas. The sprites harry you, and they hector you too. You spill all the pig feet out of your tin pail. Such a dawning as this, on a wet Wednesday morn, it does make you wonder why you were born.
5: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice